Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 310 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond uh, 300. Uh, we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did putting it together uh, I'm here with Sarah Archer today. Hannah is still on maternity leave. Hannah, I hope you're doing well. Uh, I hope you drop in from time to time. But uh, we also have, again, uh, for our third episode in a row, a guest host with us today, uh, Alyssa Pressler with That's Novel Books. Uh, welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, and on today's episode, in addition to our community news and reading recommendations, we have a great lineup. Uh, we've got uh, an author feature, Becky Robinson and her book, Reach, uh, Create the Biggest possible audience for your message, book, or calls. Uh, Sarah and I did a, one of those kind of interviews that you uh, just couldn't stop asking questions because as authors, there's just too many things you want to learn about uh, getting that message out. Yeah, it was super informative. Um, I'm excited about that one. And we also have a great uh, two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt. Paul Reale is going to tell us about how writer's block does not exist. A controversial statement. <laughs> and uh, finally, we've got our very own Hannah LaRue, and her blog post, How to Work with a Publicist, that should be fun. We'll be hearing her voice, uh, even though she's not uh, with us. So, um, yeah, let's just uh, let's kind of jump right in. Um, let's see here. In the host news, just so we can remember when this releases, because we're recording it in advance, because we're all traveling or doing other things. This will come out on October the 18th. So uh, what's going on in your world around October the 18th, Sarah? So um, I think what I will have done <laughs> by then <laughs> is I'm supposed to be going to a bluegrass festival in Hillsboro on October 15th, I believe it is, um, which I'm looking forward to. It was supposed to happen last month and it got postponed for weather. So it should be a good time. It's at this place called Moorfields, which I think is like an old historic house. Um, just a nice time to get outside. I know like the North Carolina State Fair is also happening this month. So hopefully sometime in the next few weeks, I'll be doing that. Um, just good like fall activities and I'm sure I'll still be continuing to work on my my screenplay and my fiction writing and who knows what else will have happened within the next couple yeah. weeks <laughs> there you go and how about you Alyssa around October 18th of this month so I will uh, over at that's novel books be preparing for our children's story time this month which is happening uh, the following week on October 29th we've got local Charlotte children's author Sydney Stern Miller coming in with her brand new book called I Love You Enough to Love Me. Very excited. She'll come in, read her book, which is just getting released this month. Um, and then we're going to paint pumpkins with the kids, which is always exciting. <laughs> love getting parents together and, and sharing a love of literacy with kids as early as possible. 
So we'll be gearing up for that. And then hopefully by October 18th, I will have announced something related to National Novel Writing Month, which is in November. I'm hoping to encourage um, some other local charlatans to write with me throughout the month, whether it's a novel or just getting into the practice of writing consistently. Um, so check out my website or our, our social media for details on that. Um, still in the works right now, so I don't have details, but hopefully by then we'll have something concrete. So yeah, the acronym for that I think is NaNoWriMo. Are you, so are you gonna do that? Are you gonna jump in? I don't, I, <laughs> it's a big commitment. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I want to say tentatively, yes. I don't know if I can actually write a full novel, but I do have an idea for a novel that I would like to explore throughout the month. So I would like to okay. force myself to dedicate some writing time to it. Um, and if the whole novel gets written in November, awesome. But if I, if I make a really good head start, I'll feel proud of myself. Yeah, nice. that's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are other people going to be doing it too. So give it a shot. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Coming up for me, uh, October 25th, uh, speaking to the Junior League Lunch and Learn here in Charlotte uh, on Deadly Decorations. And on October 26th, if you're in the Hillsborough area, come out to Yonder Bar uh, for an event from 5 to 7 uh, where they're going to have a signature drink, uh, something Captain Jack might like to drink to celebrate the book. And uh, that'll be an informal conversation uh, with uh, spirits to imbibe uh, uh, when we do. And uh, we'll be talking about the book and what inspired it uh, and uh, having a good time. So that'll be fun. And uh, hopefully, you know, I'll be back uh, from Ireland having survived the, uh, you know, the winds and the sea and the distilled spirits. And so we'll have a good <laughs> Sounds time. Sounds like an adventure there. out there. <laughs> it, it, does, it does sound like an adventure. Um, but yeah, so um, well, look, let's, uh, let's just uh, jump right into our book recommendations here and uh, – We've got, uh, well, we got our little message here from Libro first. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, we're going to let Alyssa go first this time with a book recommendation. Uh, What you got, Alyssa? Oh, boy. Uh, so we're deep into October at this point. So I'm thinking horror. I love to read oh, a yeah. story at the time. <laughs> so I'm going to recommend one of my all-time favorites. It's called The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. It was very popular maybe two or three years ago when it first came back. And it is the creepiest, cringiest mm-hmm. book I think I've ever read. It's one of those books that made me gasp out loud. It follows um, a group of American Indian men after... They have this kind of disturbing event from their youth and then years later it kind of comes back to haunt them um, through all these natural mystical ways it's bizarre and brilliantly written i recommend it to everybody that sounds good Mm -hmm. love some spookiness in october sarah sarah yeah that one sounds fascinating um i've been listening to a book through libro.fm um lessons by ian McEwen. And I've absolutely loved this book. Um, it's it's a story of this man named Roland who is growing up um, in various parts of Europe kind of throughout the latter half of the 20th century. It starts when he's a schoolboy and focuses on his relationship with um, a piano teacher, but then it kind of goes into his adult life and interweaves his life with different 20th century events like uh, World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Berlin Wall coming down, Chernobyl, um, all sorts of different things sort of weaving with his personal story. 
And it really looks at how we, we take lessons from our forebears, both on the individual and family level and on kind of a wider cultural level, how we pass things down from one generation to the next, um, both in good and bad ways. And it's beautifully written. His prose is amazing, um, just very sort of insightful into the, the ways that humans act and why they do things. And also for the audiobook, the narrator on it is great. He has like a beautiful British accent and just really kind of adds something to it. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend this book. Yeah, and another um, Libro book that uh, I listened to, um, this is the third book in the series for Richard Osman. It's called The Bullet That Missed, A Thursday Murder Club Mystery. It just released in September. Uh, I love his books. I love his writing. Um, just very clever. Uh, some great uh, point of views. Uh, uh, as they say, there's a new mystery afoot in the third book in the Thursday Murder Club series from uh, million-copy best-selling author Richard Osman. It's a uh, it's an ordinary Thursday, and things should finally be returned to normal, except trouble is never far away for the Thursday Murder Club. Uh, they, they sort of get into a decades-old case, uh, uh, and uh, there's a local news legend. Uh, she's murdered, but the body can't be found. There are no answers. Um, and then uh, somebody's chasing Elizabeth, wants to kill her and her husband. Uh, suddenly the cold case becomes red hot. Everybody's after the Thursday Murder Club folks, but they've got some strategies in mind. It's just a very... It, it, it's uh, a fun gang to spend time with, these pensioners that are in a, uh, a retirement community uh, outside of London. And they, um, they're really smart. They come from all different backgrounds, uh, and they're just a lot of fun to be around. And we talked about characters on the podcast. This is very much great, great characters that you want to find out what they're doing and what they're going to be up to. Uh, really snappy dialogue, but good plots as well. So lot, lots of fun. Um, Okay, so that's the three of us. We're going to hear what uh, Mark West uh, with Story Charlotte Blog uh, has to share with us uh, uh, right now. Hello, this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte Blog. My recommendation today is a biography about a very important woman in the history of Charlotte education. The biography is titled Bertha Maxwell Roddy a modern-day race woman, and the power of black leadership. This biography is written by Dr. Sonia Ramsey, who is a history professor at UNC Charlotte, and she's also the director of the Women's and Gender Studies program at the university. As Dr. Ramsey makes clear in her biography, Bertha Maxwell Roddy was a leader in education circles in Charlotte, both in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system, where she worked as a teacher and as a principal. And then she went on to become an education professor at UNC Charlotte, one of the first African-Americans to be a professor at the university. And then she went on to establish the Black Studies program at the university, which has evolved into the current Department of Africana Studies. In this amazing biography, Dr. Ramsey really captures the crucial role that Dr. Bertha Maxwell Roddy played in the desegregation movement in Charlotte and in the establishment of a Black Studies program at the university. This is a really relevant biography, and I highly recommend it. All right. Thanks, Mark, for that uh, recommendation. Uh, and uh, so in vain with our elevator pitches, we have another uh, uh, author here who submitted a, 
elevator pitch, you can go to our website, uh, charlottespodcast.com, the contact page, and submit your own elevator pitch, 30 seconds or less. Uh, let's hear you work on that pitch and uh, tell us about your book. And here's what uh, uh, Lynn had to say about her book. Hi, my name is Lynn Rosenberg. I wrote and published two books within the past couple of years. One is called 50 States, 50 Stories. I never thought I'd live here. And it's about people who came to live in Las Vegas who never expected to live here. The second book I wrote is called Thelma and Lou, published in uh, May of this past year, which is a dramedy about second chances in love, about a couple who were married for 30 years and divorced. And it was their attempt to get back together again. Both of them can be found on Amazon. You can go to my website, lynnsrosenberg.com. Thank you so much. All right. Thank Lynn. I think we gave you a little bit more than 30 seconds, but uh, that was good. We appreciate uh, you doing that. And uh, thanks for, for playing our uh, elevator pitch game with us. Uh, okay. Before we go to act two and jump into our feature interview today with Becky Robinson, uh, we invite uh, listeners to provide feedback on all kinds of things. We ask for book recommendations, maybe questions for the uh, hosts here. But uh, this time we got uh, from Linda Bichard a a book marketing tip. Uh, yeah, we welcome those as well. So let's hear what Linda has to say. Good morning, Landis and Landis's fabulous crew. Linda Bouchard here, author of the children's Halloween book, The Witches Three, Count on Me. And I'm also the founder of Booking Authors, Inc. I'm a big believer in mental preparation for anything, but especially true when it comes to writing a book. So the will to prepare comes before the will to succeed. And it is vital to your success as an author. And here's why. If you don't have a solid game plan in place, before you write a single word, you'll flounder and be unable to handle the obstacles that will come your way and you'll lose your confidence. So the very act of preparation attracts to you opportunities that will help you move forward more quickly. So beginning with the end in mind is critical. And I've always said that victorious warriors win first and then go into battle. And it is so true for you as an author. If you consider marketing as part of your creative process and not separate from, from it, you will think about the preparation as you begin. And so just as an analogy, if you think of it as the birth of a baby, you start thinking about so much that goes into um, when your baby's born. The minute you find out you're pregnant, you think about how to prepare for it, how to get its room ready, what kind of name you'll give it. And it's the same thing with a book, preparing for its birth. So that analogy might help you think about it differently. So prepare to succeed, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice your gift. So, Liz, do you think uh, Linda's speaking to you to get prepared for NaNoWriMo there? <laughs> might be. And I, uh, my primary job is marketing, so I love that. She's, you know, figuring out ways to integrate it into the creative process from the beginning that uh, definitely speaks to my soul a little bit. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, what were your thoughts on that, Sarah? Yeah, well, first of all, I could listen to her talk about anything. She has such a great voice. But <laughs> um, I like how she talked about how preparation creates opportunity or allows for opportunity. You know, it can seem like opportunities are things that just kind of land in your lap or that land in other people's laps. Um, but by preparing and putting yourself in the right place to be open to those opportunities, that's how you how you get them and how you lay the groundwork. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's a great idea to start thinking about that early on and not just finish a novel and then be like, okay, what do I do now? It, it's never too early to start that. that you know, All right. Well, well, thanks, Linda, for your your voice and your message. And uh, going to be moving to Act 2 in just a moment. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, because we have a lengthy interview with Becky Robinson, we're not going to spend much time here with the introduction because Sarah and I kind of pick her brain and talk about what she does uh, during the interview. But uh, she is uh, the author of Reach, Creating the Biggest Possible Audience for Your Message, Book, or Call. She's the founder and CEO of Weaving Influence as a full-service marketing agency. Uh, and uh, she's launched uh, with her company more than 150 books, uh, helping authors build their brands and acquiring more business customers, increasing book sales. So that's sort of the foundation for um, what we're going to here, um, it's got her book's got a lot of praise, and uh, so uh, let's uh, let's listen in to this interview, and hopefully you'll find some things that'll help you and in, uh, uh, in marketing your own books or whatever else it is you want to market. Becky, welcome uh, to Charlotte Rich Podcast. I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, Sarah and I are happy to be here talking with you about uh, your book, Reach: Create the Biggest Possible Audience for Your Message, Book, or Cause. It appears right there on your bookmark, and it's almost like a—it's—it's it's actually a question on your bookmark. Do you want to create the biggest possible audience and lasting impact for your work? I mean, how could the answer possibly be no to that? Well, you know, I think what I've noticed, Landis, is not everyone wants to put in the time, energy effort, money, all of those things that it might take to build a large audience and have lasting impact. So it is definitely a question to be asking. Yeah, no, good question. We're going to dive into that. But before we get into the book, uh, before Sarah and I start peppering you with questions, because we're both authors interested in figuring out the true answer to the secret question of how to market your book, uh, let's talk about you and how you got into uh, being uh, the CEO and founder of Weaving Influence, because you weren't doing that before you did that. I was not. So um, I stepped out of the workforce in 2001 when I had my first child and I re-entered the workforce in about 2009 and I, I was always interested in writing um, and I happened to get some opportunities to do some freelance blogging and freelance social media marketing so I learned everything that I'm doing now by doing it. I don't have a background in you know any kind of business education or marketing education i'm definitely a self-taught marketer um, but i happened to get hired to work on a book launch for a client back in 2011 which really introduced me to this whole world of how do you leverage digital marketing to spread messages especially to spread books so um, i started my firm in 2012 we've been launching 
primarily nonfiction business books with authors for 10 years. We have done some fiction along the way, and I certainly enjoy watching how fiction and marketing fiction is different. I've served a few clients who are marketing fiction. It, it is kind of different, um, but there are some similarities and some you know common approaches that anyone needs to take if they want to be successful in reaching a bigger audience with their books. Yeah, and you and uh, Sarah and I have something in common, uh, that is, you run a podcast. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we've been doing Book Marketing Action Podcast, the Book Marketing Action Podcast, since uh, I think this is our third year. Uh, we're nearing our 100th episode, so not as far as you two. Yeah, well, listeners, uh, listen into that because Becky's figured out how to keep it uh, tight, and we just keep going on and on with our Beyond 300. <laughs> We're going to have to work on getting tighter in what we do here, but you've got some good takeaways in each episode. I enjoy listening uh, to that. Uh, well, that's that's an interesting background. 150 books, uh, you know, you, you went from one thing to another, um, and uh, now you're, you've are you got this book. And I'm, I'm just curious, before we dive into the four elements, and I'm going to let Sarah lead us off there, is uh, – you know, was this always something you wanted to do or just being around all these people you were helping promote their books? You said, Dad, I'm going to have to do this, too. Well, I, you know, I think if I go back to my earliest memories, I've always been a reader and I've always liked writing. I don't know that I really had a vision for you know, writing and publishing a book myself until I did start the business. I remember early on, I flew out to San Francisco with the client. Um, he was published by Barrett Kohler Publishers, which eventually became my publisher. And Barrett Kohler does this unique thing with authors where uh, when you're getting ready to do your book, you have what they call an author day. Now, in the age of COVID, it has become virtual. But back then, they would fly the author in for an entire day. You would look at book covers. You would look at uh marketing approaches, sales approaches, distribution approaches, you'd work with editorial, just an entire day focused on you as the author. And I think it was the first time that I accompanied an author on that journey that I really <laughs> got this burning within me of like this, I want this for myself. I, I, I want to be that too, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Sarah, you want to kick us off here with the discussion of the book? I think you had a question about the the overall principle of the book. Yeah, I mean, you had so many great quotes to pull out in here, like little takeaways that I loved. Um, one of them towards the beginning is you define reach as expanding your audience plus having a lasting impact, which I think is a really, really great summation of a lot of the principles in the book. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of what that means to you and that as an overall guiding principle? Sure. So um, as I was crafting the book, uh, my original title was not reach. Yeah. Um, and so um, when we is it, is it ever the original <laughs> original title ever the title of your book? You know, probably <laughs> rarely. Um, yeah. It actually was my editor who pushed me on. We we need to do it a good job now that we have reach as the title of putting some structure around it. And I think, you know, whenever I meet with authors, of course, something I hear is like, well, I want to reach more people, or I want to, you know, I really want to reach the biggest audience possible, or you know, I I, I want to reach, you know people in X audience with my message. So reach was an already commonly used word. In terms of the definition that I've given it, uh, you know, I think to define reach by audience alone really misses an important part because, you know, it is difficult to reach a wide audience. You know, I never want to discourage someone like if they come to me and they say, well, my goal is to sell a million books in the first year. <laughs> well, you know, the data tells us that very, very, very few authors are going to sell a million books in the first year. So uh, part of the idea around defining reach to be 
expanding audience plus lasting impact is that, you know, impact is something that anyone can achieve. And what I wanted to do in defining reach in a new way is to give people a vision of what's possible and help them realize that it really isn't only about uh, the audience size side. Um, now, originally, the subtitle of the book actually wasn't um, what it is now about audience. The impact to me is far more meaningful. Um, what you know, people talk about going viral, and my oldest child actually created a video that went viral on TikTok this summer. It reached three million people or had three million views. And also it was utterly forgettable. So if we only focus on getting a big audience, we're not necessarily going to achieve that part that's more meaningful. Well, you, you mentioned something, Becky, that I think, and, and basically for, for those who are listening, this book uh, I think does translate well with a lot of the principles to any fiction author who's trying to market their book too. Um, and we're going to talk about those four principles uh, in a moment. But this idea of, you know, well, my book's for everyone, or I want to sell a gazillion books, or I want to be famous. Uh, I mean, for most people, that's just not realistic. So when you're representing clients uh, and you have that sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, put them on a couch and act as their psychiatrist or something, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you give them a reality uh, check for what's going on there? Well, I think sometimes looking at the data is helpful. You know, um, we might look at someone like Colleen Hoover. I last night saw um, another book marketer sharing this incredible news that Colleen Hoover so far year to date has sold 7.3 million copies wow. of her novels. She's selling more books. Uh, she's selling more than the Bible is selling. Um, <laughs> it's this ridiculously crazy phenomenon that's happening with her because of TikTok and BookTok. Uh, I think that people see something like that and they suddenly think if it's possible for Colleen Hoover, like I'm going to be the next, you know, oh. what do people call her? Uh, Coho <laughs> or something. I don't know. Like I'm going to be the next one. You know, they look right. at J.K. Rowling and they hear that J.K. Rowling was rejected so many times before she got a publisher and she sold so many books. Um, and they, they don't really think about how many books come out every single day and how unlikely it is for them to be that breakout. Uh, the other thing is that people think it happens immediately or overnight. So on the business book side of things, uh, Brene Brown is is one of the best-selling business book authors. She had a TEDx talk that went viral in 2012. People think that it was that viral TEDx talk that propelled her to the success that she's enjoying today. The reality is she was writing, researching, releasing books for a decade or longer before that viral video. So I think any, any kind of focus on huge success is really discounting the fact that it takes a lot of hard work to get there. Mm. Yeah, which kind of leads to my next question, which uh, I think right early in the book when you're talking about your four principles, which are value, consistency, longevity, and generosity, when you start with value, the very first line in that section is reach starts with delivering value to people. So before you get uh, your head in the clouds and want to be that overnight success, you better have something of value to deliver, right? 
Yes. And so you might be curious about how that might apply to fiction. Um, when I think about the value that fiction provides, it's the value of a captivating story. It's the entertainment. It's escaping our day-to-day -day lives for a moment. And there's a ton of value in that. You know, I love reading fiction. I love mm -hmm. a great thriller or, you know, a happy romance. You know, mm -hmm. um, there is value in fiction as well. So for those who might read the book or pick up the book, as you think about value, you know, on nonfiction, you know, you want to uh, provide principles, you want to provide um, approaches, you want to make someone think in a new way. Um, and fiction has that same power. So, you know, the value is the story, it's the characters, it's the uh, entertainment. Um, so value is critical. You know, no one's going to buy a book if they don't perceive it to provide something to them. And, you know, fiction, nonfiction, obviously, we buy them for different reasons at different times. Um, but there is tremendous value in the things that we can write that no one else could. You know, on the subject of value, um, one of the, the sections in the book that I found really fascinating was you talked about how you can repurpose content or sort of stretch it in different ways. Like, say, you write a blog post and then you pull principles out of it that you use to make posts on social media. And you can also generate a podcast episode out of it. And talking about just this incredible number of ways that you can come up with to get content and various forms of value for your audience out of maybe one original kind of seed idea. Um, do you have ideas about how maybe fiction authors can do the same thing with the work that they're producing? You know, I think it's more challenging uh, for fiction authors to think about repurposing their work. You know, that said, um, I think there are times that our characters say poignant and compelling things. So on the side of, are there quotes within your fiction work um, that could stand alone as something inspiring. I think for fiction authors, quite often the themes in the book could inform the content that they can repurpose. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, my friend Stephanie Lansom writes historical and biblical fiction. And her most recent novel, In a Far Off Land, is kind of a prodigal son story. Um, and so within that, there are some really beautiful moments. And those moments just shared as a vignette are uh, moments that she can lift from her book and share as a standalone on social media. Um, or, you know, as she looks at themes within the book, you know, rebellion or forgiveness or uh, reconciliation or redemption, those themes, you know, are, are something that she can reshape to reach people at different times. I do think it is more challenging to figure out how to repurpose fiction um, as a rule compared to nonfiction. And I recently actually experienced that. So I have a client uh, with whom I'm working and she has a book that's kind of a blend of memoir and kind of social change. And what I found is that repurposing that book is really different than, you know, repurposing a leadership book that's like, say, the six ways to be a better leader tomorrow. You know, obviously that is so easy. You know, you pick it apart. Those six ways can become six articles. You know, the possibilities of repurposing that kind of content are, you know, practically endless. Whereas with fiction, you really do have to be a bit more creative about the ways that you can figure out how to repurpose your novel. Yeah, well, one thing, I, I like your uh, graphic on page 110 where you talk about uh, the different ways to repurpose. You talk about social media, of course. You've got newsletters, videos, graphics, speeches, 
blog posts and articles, webinars, podcasts. And one of the things we do with the this podcast is we offer authors the opportunity to contribute to our community blog, and then we'll maybe mention it on our podcast. So if you're a fiction author, you write a blog post on writing or marketing, you get you, you mentioned. And sometimes I think it's better to be mentioned about what you know you know and then get your book, your fiction book mentioned along the way rather than always leading with your fiction book. Sometimes it works that way. But I found it very interesting because you talked about uh, how you could, one book you did was like 33 articles, 50 media posts, 50 quotes, uh, 24 podcast episodes. I mean, the same thing could happen with fiction if you've got an underlying theme that, uh, let's say, I don't know, deal, deals with uh, uh you know, um, what, pick any theme in the world, you know, that uh, would be relevant to somebody um, that's just a part of that story. You can actually create a separate nonfiction part of your your visibility uh, out of your book. And sometimes you don't realize, I think, what you're writing about theme-wise until you get through. So <laughs> that's, that's a way to do it. Do, Sarah, do you agree with that? So. Yeah, I think that's a great point that both of you are kind of hitting on that if you're writing fiction, you can maybe pull things from the actual content itself in terms of like character quotes or, or topics and themes you're talking about in there and get extra content out of that that can connect to your audience, but also just the craft of the writing that you're doing and lessons you've learned along the way as a writer. You can always get content out of that that people will connect with, and it's a good way to sort of promote your your work on the side as you do that. Um, and that might be easier to maybe generate those um, sort of different ways of recycling the same ideas and re representing them and repurposing them out of that sort of content. So yeah, I think as long as you get creative about it, there's, there's a ton that you can do there. Yeah. And Becky, what are some examples of, uh, you know, you taking your own advice here with this book in terms of repurposing content? Sure. I'd love to share that with you. I don't know if you had a chance to uh, access the QR code at the end of every chapter, but one of the things that I did in the process of writing my book, I would interview people who I wanted to feature their story in the book on my podcast. Mm -hmm. And so not only did I take the transcript of the podcast and use that as I was writing the book, but then we also, you know, had those interviews released as podcast episodes. And then those episodes also incorporated into the free course that we built that accompanies the book. So you know, that one interview we were reusing in multiple ways, you know, not only is it on the podcast, it's in the course, the stories are in the book. We, every time we promote a podcast, we pull out audiograms. And so that's another piece of content. We do quote graphics where we pull a powerful quote from the interview and that's another graphic. Um, and so even just like one podcast episode, the opportunities to repurpose and reshape it are endless. And I use that whole journey of writing my book. I can't even remember how many different podcast interviews I did. There were many, many. Mm -hmm. And so when people buy the book and then they um, use the QR code to get into the course, they'll see that those podcast episodes are embedded for the ways that they add value to the journey of, of reading the book. So like one example of that is Dan Rockwell, and I talk about him in the book, connected to consistency. And so when I'm talking about Dan Rockwell, you get a tiny bit of that interview in the book, but then when you go to the course or the podcast, you can hear more of his insights. And so it's a way of extending the learning. 
Yeah, well, let's jump to consistency. Uh, Sarah, you got a question there? Yeah, yeah. So um, you talk about personal brand in this book a fair amount, which I think is a really interesting discussion topic. Um, one thing you mentioned here is that your personal brand already exists. You don't necessarily have to try to figure out what it is because it's you. It's your authentic self. Um, so as far as for fiction writers, how can a fiction writer whose work may be less kind of obviously or literally about themselves as a nonfiction writer how can you um, build a consistent personal brand over time that encapsulates who you are and your work and kind of mesh that together for your brand as a fiction writer? Sure. I think for a fiction writer, you know, in some ways, the topics of your fiction inform your brand because you come to be known for the type of stories that you're writing. Now that can be tricky if you're a fiction author who crosses a lot of genres. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if either of you have done any reading uh, from Stephen James. Uh, Steve, Stephen James writes in a ton of different genres. He has over 50 books. So for someone like him, it's, it's, you know, considerably more difficult. But if you're someone who's primarily, you know, kind of in one lane, you know, maybe you're a fantasy author or you're a romance author or you're a thriller author, you know, you become known for that. Um, and I think there's a choice about how much of myself do I want to share through my social media? You know, I, I think that as authors build vibrant social media presences, they can merge the kind of fiction area that they're writing about with their own kind of personal interests, because obviously you write what you're interested in. So my friend, Stephanie Lansom, who I referenced earlier, who's a fiction author uh, with whom I work, she loves history. She was a history major. And so part of the way that she built her online brand is, you know, she has this historical society. She talks about the history behind the research that she's doing as she writes her next novel. You know, she pulls in, you know, unique costumes and, you know, various, you know, she, her one book is set in the 1920s. So she does a lot about 1920s film, you know, uh, on top of that, she has cats and a dog and she, you know, likes nature. And so as you start to share parts of yourself, that kind of the intersection of, of who you are when you're not writing along with the topics that you're interested in writing about, you know, you become known that way, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, completely. Yeah, it does. And I'm, I'm on this topic of consistency, I'm kind of seeing two parts of it here, because early in the book you talk about, um, you know, consistency and creating and sharing value. Of course, creating is the, the content that you're creating and sharing, but then, you know, later you're talking about, uh, you know, being patient and having a long view and being consistent, you know, along the way, which I think could apply to marketing or building up your brand, which I think uh, is kind of a, I don't know, two-headed monster for a fiction writer, right? Because you're built, you're, you're writing these stories, but then you're trying to build your individual brand as well. And maybe it's more closely tied when you're nonfiction and you're, you've got a brand that speaks to what you're doing in the world. But the Talk about the differences there, the consistency in creating the content, consistency in staying in front of people. Sure. Well, I think in some ways it's one and the same. Um, so I do talk in the book about the difference between consistency of action and consistency of presence. So consistency of presence means, you know, I'm showing up online over time regularly, 
you know, I'm not disappearing for a year while I write my next novel and no one sees me on social media or my mm -hmm. newsletter stops. Um, consistency of presence mean I'm means I'm no whether I'm writing actively or I'm not writing actively, people know that I'm going to be online in some way engaging. Um, you know, I think what I've noticed from meeting fiction authors over the years is that most of them just want to spend more time writing. Marketing <laughs> is not is not fun to them. So I think the the more we can create what's sustainable for us about consistency, the better off we are. You know, it might not be sustainable for you to release, you know, five podcasts a week or five blog posts a week. Uh, it may not even be sustainable for you to do one newsletter a month, but can you establish some approaches where you're creating value, connecting with people is valuable. So, you know, is there a sustainable way you can do that? Um, and then, you know, just keep showing up is, is the yeah. most simple advice that I always give. Yeah. And as you know, when I've interviewed a number of authors on here and several New York Times bestselling authors have said there were overnight successes, it just took 10 years, you know, for them to, to get there. And, uh, you know, so it, and other people have said, uh, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, which I think is a perfect segue into longevity. So I'm teeing that up for you, Sarah. Yeah, longevity. yeah. Well, I think consistency <laughs> and longevity go hand in hand pretty neatly. Um, you did have one one line in here that says that there is no express train to reach, <laughs> which I think is a valuable thing for us to remember. Um, you know, as you're talking about, a lot of writers do kind of think they're going to go viral or you want to sell a million books in your first year. And obviously that's not reality for most people, um, but that's also not the only way to create value and impact. Um, do you find that a lot of authors feel that pressure to have overnight success? Are they are they feeling that from their publishers or their peers? Are they coming to you and saying like they they need that instant hit? Um, and how do you help them think about you know pacing themselves and how to build build success over the long term? Sure. Um, there's a lot of questions there. Um, I want to use an example of an author uh, with whom I've worked and, and see if that helps us get at some of the answers. So uh, I have a friend, I, I'm not going to say her name. Uh, she launched a book a couple of years ago and, you know, she emailed me and we had some conversation and she said, well, I want to sell 100,000 copies the first year. And you know, we had kind of a disconnect because as I was trying to give her that reality check, she didn't like it. So we didn't end up working together. Now, fast forward, she has another book coming out and, you know, reflecting together, she did really well with the book out of the gate. I think she might've sold 15 or 20,000 and for a nonfiction book in one year, that's significant. So one of the things that I try to help people understand is, uh, that, you know, it's not often that first book that's going to be the breakout. It's the repeated creation of content over time. Um, there's a book called The Long Game uh, by an author named Dory Clark. One thing Dory says is that most um, nonfiction, you know, business thought leaders, if they start to share content online, it can take an entire year before they see any results at all. Hmm. And it can take up to five years to be recognized as an expert. So, and the other thing that she says, which I think is so powerful is that most of the time when you see people who are successful, it's only because they kept going when other people gave up. And, and I think the tendency is if you have this mindset that I'm going to write one book and it's going to make me famous, or I'm going to write one book and it's going to make me rich, then after a few months or years of seeing that it's not that way, you might give up. Whereas if you have something really valuable to share and you keep sharing it over a long period of time, um, then the results build. 
there's a cumulative effect when you show up over the long haul. Yeah, and I want to pick up on that as it relates to this longevity because when you launched your book, um, you'd been working with authors for many years. You'd put out 150 books. You were bringing this knowledge base. Uh, You probably felt some pressure yourself to do very well with your launch. Um, And I think you – I listened to a couple of your podcasts, and I I get your emails, so I saw that you also – put yourself out there, you, you know, your vulnerability about how you were feeling. And maybe you can just share with us a little bit about the stresses and pressures and and the fact that you've had to convince yourself that it's a long game. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Landis. I, I'm honored that you've listened and read and watched. Um, well, of course, you know, I own a digital marketing agency. I want to convince people that I know what I'm doing as it relates to marketing books. Um, and so when it's time to market my book, it's like everyone's watching to see what I did and and, and what results I got. Um, you know, I think if I'm honest, the thing I've learned is it's even harder than I thought. And, you know, while, while I am seeing that I'm selling books and moving books, um, I'm learning, you know, just how critical it is to stay out there. So I've always told authors, you have to keep your book in the conversation. You know, it can't be a one month focus on marketing the book and then you disappear. And so I myself have taken my own advice. I've gone on a lot of shows. If anyone invites me, I say yes to everyone. You know, this evening I'm doing a presentation to a group of writers um, in a virtual environment. I'm not sure how many will be there, but anybody invites me to show up to anything, I'm gonna say yes. Because what I notice is if I go on Author Central on Amazon, when I go, when I have an event, whether it's a podcast that drops or a speaking engagement or an in-person event, there's a spike. When I'm not doing anything, I'm not selling any books. It's the same for everyone. Unless, you know, you're some kind of breakout success and other people are doing the hard work of marketing your book for you, like on TikTok where everyone talks about Colleen Hoover, you know. For those of us who are new, for those of us who are unknown, who don't have household names, the way that we drive sales of our books and interest in our work is because we're out there. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, uh, sir, you've got a question I think relates to both fiction and nonfiction writers about you know whether you publish one book or more than one book. How about leading that off, if you don't mind, sir? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you talk about building longevity by building on your backlist and how the the best marketing tool for your backlist is your new book um, and launching that new book and obviously staying out there and promoting it. So do you have tips for how authors can use a new release to promote their backlist? Sure. Uh, Do we want to talk about fiction or nonfiction? Do both, yeah. All right. I mean, for, for fiction, I think it's kind of obvious. So, you know, the best marketing that you have for your backlist on fiction is to write a new novel that everyone loves. And I see this time and time again, just by watching people who read books and write books on social media. Um, I'm trying to think about, I can't think of the author's name. I'm reading a novel right now called The Bodyguard. And that author has several other novels. I happen to have already read those novels, but a friend of mine was posting about, I read The Bodyguard, I loved it. And now I'm gonna devour every book this author wrote before. I mean, that's part of why Colleen Hoover can sell 7.3 million books so far this year. She has a big backlist. She's not selling 7.3 million copies of one book. People are reading whatever book they discover and then they're going and devouring the backlist. So with fiction, just keep 
keep writing better novels. I'm trying to think. I read a novel recently that I loved called The Lincoln Highway. Mm, I read it too. It yeah, I yeah. loved it. And so what did I do? I went to try to get the other two novels that he's written. Yeah. And and so, you know, on fiction, I think that's obvious. I think for nonfiction, um, it can be helpful because with your first book, you may have a smaller platform or community to sell into. And so as a nonfiction author, if you write another book um, and it's good and people get value from it, they, in a similar way, will be curious to check out the initial book. I, I don't think it's quite as uh, sure a thing. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that, you know, if I read um, Simon Sinek, Start With Why, and I loved it, that I'm going to immediately go out and, and buy and read everything else. Um, but but it does have some effect. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, you do and that uh, we do with the podcast here and that other authors do when they either have a podcast or they have a blog where they talk about other writers um, is this thing called uh, generosity, um, which I found very interesting. Um, it, it's really kind of, a, you know, a no-brainer, but I think it's important to have it as a part of this and have people talking about it because a lot of times people are about me, 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 my book, my book, my book, and uh, – you know, if you flip it around, let's talk about how you flipped it around, Becky, and how it's come back to actually help you in marketing your own book. Sure. Well, I think that generosity helps us to connect with people more quickly. Uh, I think about this in terms of my business, for example. You know, if I have an opportunity to talk to an author on a call when they may be exploring hiring my company, I want to be as generous as I can in the time that I have with them to help them, you know, understand something about book marketing, to give them some ideas. Um, and I want to be as generous as I can in the moment with my expertise, my energy, with my encouragement to them or um, with somehow inspiring them on their journey. Um, so when I think about generosity, you know, people say, well, you know, I wrote a nonfiction book. I'd, I don't want to give away too much content <laughs> because people won't buy the book. And I, I actually believe the opposite. I think it's only through freely giving away our ideas that we can get the attention of or interest of people who might want to buy our books. I think if we get kind of hoard our ideas, like why would anyone care? Um, generosity unlocks interest. It it builds connections. Um, and I have found it to be true on my own journey. Um, and I, I can't really explain it. It's like this, <laughs> this you know, kind of magical, um, amazing thing that happens when we, when we give away more, we see more come back to us. Yeah, and there's several kind of giveaways here. One, you're talking about giving away a book. And I, I've known some fiction authors, when I mention this idea, funnels, give away your first one. They go, no, I spent years writing that first one. I'm not about to give that thing away. And then you're like, but wait a minute, just think what will happen. You know, you'll get a larger reader base potentially, and then they might buy your next books. And and then you've got the other generosity piece, which is just being a part of the community, right, and doing things for others in the community, which is a lot of what you do with the podcast, which is a lot of what you do uh, when you give this book away to people and they see it, uh, so I don't think we can, I mean, that, that's, a, that's something that I think sometimes writers overlook. Uh, and, and you shouldn't necessarily go about it, maybe I'm preaching here, but you shouldn't go about it with the expectation that it's going to give you something. But if you do it, 
I don't know how you feel about it, Becky, but sometimes if you do something nice for somebody, it makes you feel good, right? And then certain things happen as a result, maybe not then, but a year down the road, right? Certainly so. And yeah, to pick up on what you said, I definitely am a, a believer if you have the resources to do so, to give away as many books as you can. Books are seeds. And if you wrote a book to add value to people, the only way it can add that value is if they read it. If you're you know, virtually unknown um, or you have a, a small kind of base of connections and community, if you can enlist others in helping get your book out in the world, that's going to help you get much farther. Um, but people have to know about the value in your book before they can help you share it. So one way to get them enlisted in helping share your book with others is to give it away to them. Plus, people are going to give it away anyway. I mean, I, I was playing golf with some friends one time, and the guy said, you wrote a book, Landis? And the other friend said, yeah, I've got it. I'll give you my copy. And I'm like, hey, dude, you know, <laughs> make him go buy one. No, no, I'll give it to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is tricky, uh, especially yeah. if book sales is a high priority. I try to yeah. think about, well, how many of my books are in the world? You know, yeah. not it's yeah. not necessarily exactly. how many did I sell, but yeah. how many are in the world? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you can do free book bub you know, features and things to try to get recognition, which, you know, I did for my recent novel and it really generated a bunch of reviews, which is great because there's more people reading it. Um, so Sarah, I know you've got a question on generosity here. Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of the generosity that you practice both in the book and even in this interview is giving people a platform based on your platform. Like you, you spotlight a lot of writers and thought leaders who you know throughout the book and reference their stories and their, their work and quotes from them. Um, and even talking to you now, you have a lot of, you know, writer friends and, and people within your field who you can call out and, and give them a little bit of a reference. Um, is that something that you, you know, try to, to consciously do to help other people build their platforms with the platform that you have and and have you seen any sort of reciprocal um, benefits for your own work with that yeah that's a really great question sarah thank you um so if you think about my business it you know my business is supporting authors and thought leaders and so even before i had my own book one of the ways that my company tried to differentiate ourselves is that we used our own platforms and our company's social channels to promote our clients books when they came out so i think in some ways that comes really naturally to me because for 10 years you know it, it uh, people listening to the podcast can't see this, but behind me in my office are these posters. Every poster has the books that we promoted in that year. And every time we promote a book, you know, we have a client whose book just came out this week. It's actually a pair of authors. Um, their names are Stella Lupashore and Solange Charas, and they have a new book called Humanizing Human Capital. And when, when we're recording this, it, this is their launch week. What we've done as an organization from the very beginning is to showcase people's books when they come out. So that definitely has been, you know, something that I've practiced um, because I believe in the value of it to be able to expand your um, reach by using my my communities of people mm -hmm. who are following me. And Landis, you mentioned that you read my Friday newsletter nearly every week. I'm talking about someone else's book in my newsletter. Right. Um, and that helps. I, I definitely have seen people reciprocate it. I, def, I don't do it for the purposes of getting people to reciprocate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's natural that if you admire someone or appreciate their work, you'll find a way to talk about them. Um, so the best way to inspire people to do that is to do good work uh, that makes a difference for them. And then hopefully they will talk about you. 
Yeah, and hopefully people that are listening will buy your book. And just a little little story about that here. Uh, you, you also created something called Hometown Reads, which is where I first met you because I saw that and I told the Charlotte Writers Club about it and people started uploading. And I saw, oh, Becky Ramos. And then I signed up for your newsletter and then I listened to your podcast. And then uh, now you're on our podcast. And so, hopefully, you know, so it kind of, these things, and that was several years ago, right? When I first mm-hmm. found out about Hometown Reads and all that. And so uh, you follow people over time and then, you know, you get back and forth and that helps. But hey, I want to finish up here with, uh, because I know there are people listening that are probably thinking, well, how do I, how do I put this into action with my own book launch kind of thing? You know, how do I go into this? And we won't cover that in detail. There is a great appendix in the back of the book, listeners, uh, uh, that I commend to you on launching a book. Because I have to admit, Becky, uh, when I did my book launch in the spring, I had probably, I don't know, 20, 30 events, and I didn't do some things I should have done <laughs> that, are, that are in here, like, you know, have a list that people could sign up for my newsletter. Dadgummit, I didn't have a list when I was at all these different events. You know, that's one of the things you mentioned. That's a really good idea, you know. I should have done that, you know, but uh, let's just talk a little bit about book launch. Um, sometimes an author, and I did this in my first book, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. There is a planning process that goes into a book launch, is there not? There is, and what I find is that people wait until the last minute. I was corresponding mm-hmm. just this morning with the guy, and he wants his book to come out in mid-November. <laughs> if you're contacting a marketing agency in mid-September or late September for a November book launch, you've probably waited too mm-hmm. long. In the an ideal, le- the train has left the station. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean <laughs> that you can't be successful because you do want to commit to marketing a book over the long term. So if you're going to market a book for two or three or five or ten years, of course, you know, getting started late isn't, you know, it's not a disaster. But in an ideal world, you begin to plan for the book launch as soon as you begin writing the book. And you know, in a more ideal world, you're building your network of communities and online spaces long before you need them. So, you know, I I say that basically there are four phases to launching a book and the building phase begins from the moment that you know you're going to do a book um, to about six months before. So the hard work of really planning the detailed work for a launch, if you can start six months before, it's fantastic. Mm, Yeah. And then there are all the little pesky details you got to go through to get the thing uh, put together and then uh, get your pre-orders out there and then start putting stuff out on social media and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, Sarah, you got anything to wrap up here? Um, Well, I did actually want to take one of your questions from your discussion guide. You have some great questions in the back there um, and turn it around to you. So um, (laughs) the question you ask is, have you written a book, which you have? (laughs) And if yes, what value did it bring to you? So um, with this book, what value have you seen it bring to you for your, your career and your life? Thanks for asking. I think that there's still more time for this book to add value to my life and career. Uh, you know, as we're talking, I'm about four or five months past the lo- the book coming out. Um, you know, so far what I've noticed, it, uh, there are a few things. Uh, one is that, you know, people who might choose to work with my company who read the book first get a really clear idea of what I'm about. And so it definitely has been a credibility builder and a connection builder in terms of, you know, kind of a shortcut to people understanding what I believe about book marketing and about marketing in general. So that's one um, value that the book has brought. You know, obviously, um, having experienced the author journey on this side has given me the value of having greater empathy into what my clients are experiencing. And so, um, you know, quite often, 
authors will say like, oh, you know, I'm in this editing phase and I'm overwhelmed and I have this quick turnaround. Well, now that I've experienced that, you know, I, I can be a better partner in terms of helping authors know what to expect and helping them navigate the traditional publishing journey. So that's like one significant value for my life and career is just that kind of insider view of this process instead of the outsider view that I had before. You know, I've met a lot of great people on this journey, you know, through different podcasts that I've been on and events that I've attended. So that's value. You know, a book can be a door opener to opportunities in our lives that we don't expect. Um, you know, even like kind of silly things like um, I had this conversation on Instagram with a musician. I can't remember where he's from, but he bought my book at a store in the Philippines. Yeah. Like, first of all, how'd my book get to a store in the Philippines? And second of all, like, isn't it amazing how social media gives us the chance to connect with people that we might otherwise not meet and add value to them? Like, for me, like I always knew that authors have this thing where the best thing ever is when you get positive feedback that your book made a difference. And my clients will say like, all I want is like to hear that people read it and that it helped them. And I think I underestimated how fun that would be of like, you know, someone I don't even know posting on social media about something that I wrote that made a difference. So um, those yeah. are just a few of the things that I've seen so far. It, it was, it's, Helpful to me. I just hope I can remember to do the things that uh, you talk about in here the next time I'm, you know, <laughs> out there. It's certainly going on, on the shelf with all the, the how-to books when it comes to uh, to marketing there. And, uh, and Becky, we want to thank you for uh, spending some of your valuable time with us today and our listeners on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're in Act 3, and uh, as part of that, we're going to be having uh, our Charlotte Lit 2-Minute Tip with Paul Reality. And this one is uh, Writer's Block Does Not Exist. Uh, we'll play that now, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Hi, I'm Paul Rialli from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. For my many years as a writer and coach, I've developed a list I call the Immutable Laws of Writing. Today is the most controversial on the list. Immutable Law number three, writer's block does not exist. Before you object, let me clarify. I acknowledge that we can feel blocked. Immutable Law number three contends there is no ailment, no virus, no universal diagnosable condition called writer's block. Writer's block is a bogeyman. The number one block, according to Stephen Pressfield's indispensable book, The War of Art, is resistance. The trick is to identify the resistance, because if you can name it, you can solve for it. Here are some blocks, some forms of resistance, and what to do about them. One, nothing I write is any good. The glib but useful solution to this is lower your standards, by which I mean Stop expecting that every sentence that emerges from your fingers is dead solid perfect. Embrace what Anne Lamott calls the shitty first draft. 
Two, I don't know what happens next. This probably means you're a pantser, a seat-of-the-pants writer who lets the story emerge organically. One easy solution is to make a list of bad things that can happen to your character and pick one of those to write about. Three, I'm out of ideas. Just as I don't believe in writer's block, I don't believe that writers ever run out of ideas. Generally, the opposite is true. Too many ideas. More likely, the issue is you're not capturing the ideas as they occur to you. A simple solution, carry a notebook or have a voice app ready on your phone. When something tickles at your brain, get it down. 4. I'm not inspired. Your muse, for reasons unexplained, the muse never explains, has vanished, gone on vacation, or worse, is visiting the rival writer down the street. Oh, you disloyal muse. But seriously, you'll wait a long time waiting for inspiration to arrive. Go and seek it out. Walk, read, take a writing class. All of these can help. But the best solution is to put your behind in your writing chair. If you sit down to write every day between, say, 9 and 10 a.m., you'll find that that's when the muse tends to appear. In the end, blockages happen to all of us, but let's recognize them for what they are, resistance of some kind. Don't blame the mythical, all-encompassing writer's block. Find the resistance and find the cure. For more two-minute tips, listen to the Beyond 300 episodes of Charlotte Reader's podcast or visit charlottelit.org slash tips. All right, a little unpacking to do there. Uh, what do you think, Alyssa? Oh, I loved this tip. Um, you know, it goes back to, at the end at least, uh, what we talked about last podcast, which is trying to step away and giving yourself breaks as a writer so that you can continue to generate those ideas and get excited about what you're doing. I think my favorite part, though, was the embrace the shitty first draft. You know, I think as writer myself, I'm always like, no one had, you know, I don't write well, no one wants to hear what I have to write. It's not going to be profound or as brilliant as I want it to be. Um, And that was a really nice reminder that maybe it doesn't have to be at first. Maybe I just need to put it on paper and go from there. Sarah? Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the shitty first draft. I've written many. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and great advice from Paul, as always. I think, you know, it's frustrating as a writer because you have to have ideas to write. That's that's what you do is you come up with ideas and you put them down on the page. And there's no way to actually make that happen. You can't force yourself to have an idea. Um, but you can kind of figure out why you're not having ideas or why you're struggling and the behaviors and the habits and the patterns that help you to generate those ideas more and the context in which you are the most creative. And so you can try to create that environment for yourself as much as possible, whether it's, you know, taking some time away or reading, um, getting feedback from somebody else, sticking to a regular writing schedule, whatever it is, like there are ways that you can make it easier for yourself to get ideas, even though you can't force them to show up. Yeah, and I happen to think not knowing what's going to happen next is the fun part of writing. So, you know, sit down and kind of explore that. And you can use, you know, images or, you know, one-liners you've heard or different things to kind of get you going. And once you get going, I think, uh, you know, then you can create that first draft and move on. Like, Alyssa, you said you have an idea for, uh, you know, NaNoWriMo, the novel writing thing. That's great. You start with the idea and you see where it goes, you know, and uh, then you keep you keep plugging. So um, great stuff there by uh, Charlotte uh, Litt. Uh, we're going to jump next to more uh, marketing uh, with uh, Hannah LaRue's post on working with a publicist, uh, how-to guy. But uh, 
Let's uh, hear about our newsletter first. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. So our next post uh, blog post comes from our very own Hannah LaRue, working with a publicist, the how-to guide. Uh, you can find out more about Hannah uh, on this podcast and at Spellbound Public Relations, where she is the owner-operator. Everybody knows Hannah. She's a lot of fun. Hey, Hannah. How you doing? And uh, so I'm going to play the, play the post now, and uh, we'll listen to it, and then we'll talk about it. Hey, guys. This is Hannah LaRue here. Um, hopefully, by the time that you're listening to this, I will have given birth. <laughs> please. (laughs) Um, I am going to be sharing a blog post that I wrote for my Spellbound PR blog called Working with a Publicist, a how-to guide. Um, This kind of runs through what it means to actually work with a publicist and expectations and that kind of thing. So you're thinking about hiring a publicist. You've written a book, wrapped up a new album, perfected an art show, you've created something great, and now you need help sharing it with the world. In walks the publicist. You find the one whose energy matches yours and you know they're going to help you take your project to the next level. The one who is going to make you famous. I say this with a twinge of sarcasm, although our goal as publicity professionals is always to do our best to raise awareness for your work. But we are not magicians, despite the magical elements of sharing your story. I've learned over the years that it's difficult for some to understand what exactly a publicist does and what you can expect from your work together. I'm going to share some of my favorite Um, they are not my favorite (laughs) statements I've heard from creatives who are thinking about hiring publicity help. Hiring a publicist is going to make me famous. I just hired a publicist, so I'm going to be featured in the New York Times as a best-selling author. My publicist will make sure all my events are sold out, standing room only. I don't have to do anything to promote myself because that's my publicist's job. Because I hired a publicist, I'm going to see PR results immediately. Publicity shouldn't take time if it's being managed by a professional. These are just some of the common misconceptions of what working with a publicist means. Every time I hear um, someone start to say one of those things, my eyes start to twitch and my brain goes black. (laughs) This isn't to say that we don't try our hardest to get you on the bestseller list or make it so you're recognized at your favorite local coffee shop, but it's not guaranteed and it's certainly not all on us. Um, Working with a publicist means engaging in a partnership where both parties have a responsibility to the project, meaning you, the client, also needs to put the work in. If you're thinking about working with a publicist, I encourage you to mull over the following points first. Are you ready and willing to put the work in too? This means being open to sharing your contacts and background with me, brainstorming angles to which we can pitch your project, sharing where you would like to be placed, and countless other things. Do you feel comfortable promoting yourself? I am no stranger to asking a client to pitch themselves on social media and or in person when the opportunity presents itself. You need to be comfortable talking about yourself and your work. If you have an event coming up, I can't be the only one pushing details out to local media. You need to be able to share news of the event with your personal contacts too. What are your expectations and are they realistic? Be knowledgeable about your creative field and what it takes to get where you'd like to be. For example, if your dream is to be featured on the Ox- in Oxford American, what kinds of authors have walked down this path in the past? Understand that realistic goal setting is one of the many keys to success. 
Are you okay with the fact that a publicity campaign takes time, meaning more than one month, two months, or even three months? Getting quality publicity for your work will never happen overnight. One of the most important parts of PR is the art of connection, and connection involves more than one party's agenda. It takes time to build relationships and work on coverage timing that feeds everyone's needs. Just think about it. When has success ever happened overnight? Whether you're a traditionally published novelist, backed by a big five pub, pub house, or self-published, or with a small press, success still takes time. And finally, are you ready to have fun? This seems like a silly question, but if but you'd be so surprised at how many people dread promotional work. You want to enjoy this process. If you don't have a good time promoting what you do, why do you create? The best thing you can do for your relationship with your publicist is to have open communication and realistic expectations. Know what you're getting into and have an honest conversation with them about what you hope to get out of the project from the start. Be willing to put yourself out there and work with your publicist, not just stand on the sidelines and expect them to read your mind and or do all of the work without any input from you. The best projects I've worked on are the ones who, where the client is excited to work together. I'm wrapping up this post with another common statement that I hear that I really do love. I frequently hear how surprised a client is to learn how much fun it is to work with a publicist. Being creative is fun and having someone to go on that ride with you, even better. Just enjoy it. So Alyssa, you're a publicist uh, in, in a sense, and that is you're into marketing and you yeah. maybe not a traditional publicist, but you run a bookstore. So you got to be somewhat publicity minded. So uh, that pub blog post is talking about working with a publicist, but uh you know, whether you're working with a publicist or working on your own, it's all about uh, marketing and books, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one no one knows that you have a book unless you tell people. That's part of what a publicist helps you do, what someone in marketing helps you do. You've got to get your word out there and the work that you're doing out there because you never know who's listening. Um, that's something that I've learned over the years for clients and for my own work is that you never know who is watching what you're doing on the internet, who is reading what you're putting out there. Um, and when you're big break might come through when it might really take off. So it's important to tell people what you're doing and working with a publicist is a w really great way to do that in a mindful manner. Good advice, Alyssa and uh, Sarah, you know, just this idea of, you know, working with a publicist. Hannah's got a lot of good points here that she makes. Uh, of course, I've worked with Hannah as my publicist, so I've got mm -hmm. a lot to say. But uh, when you were, uh, when your novel came out, you, you didn't work with a publicist, but you worked internally with people uh, at uh, the traditional publisher. And I think, you know, maybe most writers may not realize that, uh, you know, unless you're picked to be the book that they're going to promote in a particular, you know, you don't always get as much as you'd like, right? And a lot falls to mm -hmm. the author, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You still have to basically be your own PR and marketing team, I think, no matter who you are. Um, but it is valuable to have that professional help as well, whether it's from somebody at your publisher or somebody you hire on your own, just because, you know, it's, it's a totally different skill set from writing a book. So it, it may not be something that you naturally know about or gravitate towards. And also it's a world that is changing so quickly with social media and indie publishing. And there's just so much in the world of publishing and, and how you market books that is constantly evolving. So it helps to have someone, you know, like Hannah, who knows this kind of stuff and follows it and does it for a living, who can be in your corner. But you do have to think of it as a partnership. It's not like you just, you know, you, you hire a mechanic and you think, okay, you're going to fix my car. And expect them to do it. It's not quite the same with a, a, pub, a publicist where you're hiring them, but you're working with them too. Um, and you have to do your part because, you know, you're the one who readers want to hear from. You're the, the face and the brand of your book. So you have to be out there and promote it. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that comes through here, you mentioned the word, you know, working with a team and that's, 
what I take away and what Hannah talks about a little bit in her post is that, you know, it, it's a team effort when you work with a publicist. And uh, I really enjoyed working you know, with Hannah. Um, as you know, Sarah, got a lot of energy, got a lot of good ideas. But mm-hmm. it becomes a team effort. If an author just thinks, well, I'm going to go hire somebody, you know, just to, to do all my publicity, um, you can't expect the publicist to know the book and know some things as well as you do as the author. So it really takes some brainstorming, you know, to come up with some ideas as to how to go about, uh, you know, getting your book uh, in the right places where, you know, people can talk about it and hear about it and that kind of thing. So uh, because the things that the author can do uh, that the publicist can't do, the things that the publicist can do that the author can't do, and the Mm -hmm. things that they can both do together, and it becomes better, you know, when they work together. And I found found that, uh, you know, just sort of having uh, someone uh, who, who knows publicity, you know, when I can say, hey, you know, is there any chance of doing this or that or the other? And she can be honest with me and say, no. <laughs> <laughs> or she can say, yeah. Or we can say, what if we did this or that or whatever? Yeah. So yeah. You, you try a different take and you have some some give and take. But I think it's like anything else. Uh, like in a critique group, there's give and take there too, right? I mean, you're getting feedback and one idea leads to another. Yeah, exactly. Um, you have to be able to both kind of know what you're bringing to the table and be willing to to bring that. Um, and I think also just it's important to embrace the process. You know, it can be fun. It is a lot of work. It's It takes a lot of time and effort. Um, but you can be really creative with it, too. I know like in some of your marketing, you've done, you know, like events that will have a signature drink that relates to the right. book or dressing up in costume and stuff like that attracts attention, you know, and that's what you need to get eyes on your book. Um, so I think it's important to find someone who you have a good match with and you can be creative and think outside the box and, and come up with those sort of fun marketing ideas. Yeah, because, you know, the book itself is a form of performance art. Why not extend right. that? Uh, I mean, it's hard just to hold up the book and say, oh, why don't you just read my book? You know, mm-hmm. But if you can add a little flair to it, maybe, you know, do something different. Maybe yeah. like, uh, you know, in my book, the, you know, the, one of the characters' favorite drinks was uh, – you know, Captain Jack Pilsner, which is also related to historical mystery. So what do we do? We have the uh, book launch at uh, Old Mecklenburg Brewery where they actually make Captain Jack Pilsner. You know? <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> and, we, and we drink beer while we're doing the book launch. So, you know, those kind of things. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it's it. I think uh, you need to have fun writing. You need to have fun marketing. Um, and you need to be, uh, you know, I think realistic uh, about the fact that, uh, you know, Publicists don't work for free, so you're making an investment in your book uh, when you work with a publicist. So, you know, find someone that uh, you can work with, that you enjoy working with. And, uh, you know, it's not also, I would say this too, uh, if you're thinking about hiring a publicist since you're investing, it's not always about return on investment. Sometimes authors get into the notion that, well, I'm only going to pay so much money if I can get so much money in return, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, well, if you're, you know, sort of launching your author career or maybe this is your second or third book and you're trying to build more exposure, um, your goal may not be return on, on investment as much as it is uh, broadening, you know, your exposure as an author so that you, when you write that next book, more people know about you than they knew about you before. Yeah, exactly. It's an investment, not just in the book that you're currently releasing, but in anything else you release in the future, both in terms of hopefully building your audience and your platform at the time, but also um, learning skills that you can take forward with you in your promotions in the future, making connections. Like if you talk to someone on a podcast or do a, you know, a guest post on a blog or whatever, you can 
then go back to those people when you have a new book to launch and you already have those connections laid. Um, so I, I don't think there's any way that you can necessarily exactly measure your return on investment with something like a publicist. Um, that's kind of impossible, but I think it's, it, for most people, it's money worth spending. Yeah, and I do know that there were certain media outlets uh, that I would not have gotten into without you know Hannah's experience and, uh, and pitching the book. And also know that um, there were some ideas that I had uh, locally uh, to pitch to some folks, but it was better to have that pitched by a third party mm-hmm. than to have me pitch it myself. And we were able to get some things put together there uh, through that, uh, you know, working relationship. So, um, yeah, I, I would, uh, you know, obviously I'm recommending Hannah highly, you know, mm-hmm. for anybody, <laughs> but she can't work for you right now, folks. She's on maternity leave, right? Yeah. Come to her next <laughs> so, year. <laughs> yeah, come, come to her next year. She'll, she'll be back uh, with us. Uh, and uh, Hannah, yeah, thanks for, uh, Uh, providing this post that we could talk about uh, in your absence. And we look forward to having you back soon. Yeah, for sure. All right. We got our takeaways now. Um, Thoughts, Alyssa? Gosh, I think my biggest takeaways from this episode are the uh, book recommendations. Sarah, yours, Lessons by Ian McEwan, um, sounded phenomenal. And so I'm excited to add that to my list and hopefully pick it up here soon. He's one of my favorite authors, and I had no idea about this book. so Yeah, I highly recommend it. I, I love Atonement by him, one of my faves. So I'm excited. Thank you for that recommendation. Sarah? Yeah. Um, well, I love the book recommendations too. And I, I also feel like I learned a lot about kind of the practical side of marketing books this time. I think for me as a writer, and a lot of writers feel this way, I just want to write. Like, I don't want to have to think about how you get your book out there to readers. But obviously, it's important. The goal is to, to reach people with your story. And we got some really good advice from uh, Becky and from Hannah as well this time about how you do that. And um, I think this is one that I'm going to be listening back to the next time I have a book to launch. Exactly. I'm, I'm echoing all that. I uh, love talking about uh, craft, but also really uh, about marketing uh, your books because, uh, hey, if you're not going to be excited about it, why should anybody else get excited about it? Um, all right. Well, before we go into what's coming next, I just want to thank Alyssa for being a part of uh, these last three episodes, uh, uh, sitting in for Hannah. Uh, we've enjoyed it. Uh, we love partnering with you with S Novel Books and looking forward to continuing to do more of that. Absolutely. Likewise. And thank y'all so much for having me here. It has been a blast. All right. Uh, so it's now time for uh, what's coming next. Sarah. Yeah, what's coming next? Okay. Um, so in our next episode, we've got a brand new guest host, Mark West of the Story Charlotte blog is going to be sitting in with us. Um, and he's always got a lot of great ideas and book recommendations. So definitely looking forward to that. We're going to be featuring Nicholas Graham and his novel, The Judas Case, which is a mystery set in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Um, and we've also got an interview that Hannah recorded with New York Times bestselling author Jennifer McMahon about her new modern horror story, The Children on the Hill, um, which is inspired by Frankenstein. So perfect for this time of year. <laughs> and we're also going to have our final, final installment of our review of blog recommendations from our website, um, which has some great kind of writing insights and tips in there, plus tips from Charlotte Litt and new book recommendations and more. Yes, yeah, be fun. So, hey, listeners, thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us today and uh, read on and uh, write on. <laughs>